0: Welcome to InGenius, a podcast brought to you by Engineers Without Borders at the University of Bristol. At InGenius, we explore the future by talking with the pioneering engineers of today.
1: In this episode, Tom and I speak with Sabine Howard, an assistant professor in robotics at the University of Bristol. We discuss her work to design and build swarms across scales, from nanobots for cancer treatment to flocks of autonomous drones. We also talk about her outreach work as founder of Robohub.org and her thoughts on the future of robotics. As always, we started by asking Sabine to introduce herself and describe how she got
2: where she is today. Hi, I'm Sabine Howard. I'm a senior lecturer in robotics at the University of Bristol and the Bristol Robotics Laboratory. My team engineers swarms across scales, so that goes from nanoparticles for cancer treatment all the way to robots that are bigger but could be used for things like warehouses, environmental monitoring, fire detection, you name it.
0: Maybe describe how you got to the point that you are today, what's your background all the way back to the start of your educational history, what decisions did you take along the way to get to where you are?
2: I studied computer science over at EPFL in Lausanne, Switzerland, so that's the French-speaking part of Switzerland. Uh, And as part of my computer science degree, I did a class called Bio-Inspired Artificial Intelligence, which is actually the class that I teach now here at the University of Bristol. Um, And that got me excited about the idea of swarming and artificial intelligence. And so I decided to do an exchange year as a master's student over at Carnegie Mellon University over in Pittsburgh in the US. Um, And there I basically spent the year playing football with robot dogs. Um, So I was part of Manuela Veloso's football, uh, robot football team. So it was literally, you know, we'd have these little robot dogs, and they'd run around little footballs. And my role on the team was to calibrate the robots so that when we told them to go straight, they would go straight. We told them to go left, they would go left. Um, and I really spent my whole year doing that plus some courses. Uh, and we made it to the... the- the US Championship and won the finals. So, you know, you jump up and you're like mm-hmm. crying and you're hugging your teammates, all of this because the little robot dog scored a goal. <laughs> um, and that just got me excited about the idea of robots working together. Mm-hmm. And So I went back to Switzerland to do a PhD with Dario Floriano, who was teaching this bio-AI class. Uh, and this PhD was all about swarms of flying robots to create communication networks in disaster areas. So the idea was a network has been knocked down. You could throw these drones, and then they would self-organize, a little bit like birds, to create a network. Uh, so I spent four and a half years doing that, uh, and at the end of the project, we had... And flying robots that were um the size of a, a very big bird uh wings basically and we could just throw them in the air and they would take off and they would do some cool swarm behaviors that we discovered throughout throughout my PhD um so that was over farm fields uh and that was a summer that was really fun actually it was every day in the farm fields just you know as long as there wasn't too much wind if there was too much wind it didn't work right uh, but just looking at these flying robots do our behaviors which is really cool Um, And then I thought, you know, 10 is not enough, and so I was looking for a platform that worked in much larger numbers, and I started Googling a little bit about nanoparticles, because I'd heard that they were interesting and they could be useful to, to, to treat cancer. Uh, And I spent a while during the last year of my PhD just learning about nanomedicine and cancer treatment, Uh, and I was lucky to be accepted and to get a fellowship from the Human Frontier Science Program to go to Sangeeta Bhatia's lab over at MIT, and her lab made nanoparticles for cancer treatment, and these particles worked in the 10 to the power 13, so huge numbers, um, and the idea was, can I bring some of this swarm engineering that we did in the robot world to the fields of nanomedicine? And so spent three years doing that. And then I came back, I came to Bristol. Um, and Bristol is basically my playground where I can bring uh, the modeling because I'm in a department for engineering mathematics. I can bring the life sciences because we have a wet lab that allows us to do some of the nanoparticles for cancer treatment and then there's a really big robot lab here in Bristol. Uh, So it's bringing together all these different parts so that we can engineer swarms across scales.
1: Could you define what swarm um, nanobots are and what
2: swarm really means? So for me, swarming is all about making very simple individuals That only react to their local environment or to their neighbors and follow a simple set of rules and emergent properties arise from that. So it's usually simple individuals, large numbers, local information and these emergent properties. Uh, So those agents could be robots. For me, they could be nanoparticles. I think, uh, you know, definitions are always hard because people have very different definitions. Mm. Uh, But that's where, where I play.
0: So what does an emergent property look like? What does that really mean?
2: It's usually more than the sum of the parts. Uh, so it's, it's something that you wouldn't be able to observe just by taking one of the, the agents from the swarm. So, for example, if you look at a flock of birds, if you take one bird and try to study it, that's not going to help mm-hmm. you understand what happens at the level of the flocking. Uh, so it's 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 more than you could study just by looking at the individuals. Uh, another term that's interesting is this notion of self-organization, that these systems self-organize to be able to achieve these beautiful properties. Uh, so It's interesting because there, there's a lot of discussion about how do you measure emergence? Because somehow we're very good at saying, oh, this is an interesting emergent property, but it's not that easy to measure. So that's also part of what we try to do with swarm engineering.
0: What kind of applications do you have in, in mind or what applications are you working on in your lab and and have worked on in the past
2: right now in the lab we're interested in the nanomicroscale it's mostly about biomedical applications Um, so it could be nanoparticles for cancer treatment and we have a big european project which is about using ai to automatically design nanoparticles to treat certain types of cancers Um, there's other things at the nanomicroscale that are interesting so bacteria for example also work in huge numbers could you study things like antimicrobial resistance on them um, if you just look at cancer cells themselves, is that maybe a self-organized system that you could study and try to understand how aggressive mm-hmm. a certain type of tumor is? Um, so those at those scales, it's biomedical mostly. And then at the robot scale, a lot of what we've been doing has been in the lab. There aren't many swarms out in the real world, but we are at a stage where I think we're ready um, to leave the lab. So in, in the lab, we have a 1,000 coin-sized robots. So that helps us think how... We can engineer the collective behavior of large numbers of robots working together. But we also have smaller number of more sophisticated robots that for example have GPUs on board and so they can do machine learning to learn how to swarm. Um, And so really we have hardware that we can design, large numbers or small numbers. We have algorithms that are starting to become pretty good in terms of swarm uh, design and we can also use machine learning to do that automatically. Um, And so basically what we need to do is get them out of the lab. Uh, So what we've done this summer, which I'm quite excited about, is we've actually talked to users about what swarms they would like to see. So we spoke to firefighters to understand if they would see swarms uh, as a useful technology. We spoke to people who do bridge monitoring or bridge inspection. Uh, We spoke to people who work in warehouses or logistics and I, I currently work with a startup company called Sembler that does swarm construction, so robots that can lay bricks, navigate those brick structures, so a little bit like termites. And um, so there's there's a couple of take-homes. Uh, one is that people are excited, actually. We were worried that they would all go full sci-fi and be like, Black Mirror, no, 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 I'm not touching any swarms. Uh, but they were actually quite excited if you brought it within the realm of their work um, and you could discuss the specifics. So a lot of people um, on the warehouse site, for example, have storage space that no one is organizing well and it's always a mess and people don't want to be working in that environment. That's not part of their job that they like. Uh, and they would, they would welcome technology that could help them sort that space out. There's also the fact that they're excited if it's done well. So there's a lot of, can we trust it? Can we make sure it's going to do the right thing at the right time? Um, can we understand what's happening? So really, the, the details are important in how these things are implemented. And we also learned of things that actually weren't helpful, that we assumed would be great to do swarms with. So. For a bridge inspection, for example, we thought it would be great to have little camera bots, loads of them that you could throw over a bridge and they just generate loads of 3D models of the bridge and have loads of information. And actually they were saying what are we going to do with all this data and do we need to check all the things that you highlight and is this just, you know, it has to be really well done if it's done. And what they thought would be useful is robots that go into hard-to-reach places that they can't currently do. Um, And so those are things that were helpful for us to know before we spent a whole PhD designing (laughs) the wrong tech. Another one that was interesting is that there's this notion of the art of the profession. So firefighters, you know, we were designing a fire bot that we could throw into a fire and would extinguish bits of the fire in a very, you know, naive way. And actually, the firefighters uh, were excited about the technology, but they wanted swarms to help them get information about the environment so that they could make better decisions and then go fight the fire because the firefighters are expert in firefighting. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so they didn't think a robot would be the right solution to actually do the firefighting because that is their art of the profession. Uh, So I'm, I'm hoping we're getting the information we need to get these swarms out of the lab.
0: So it sounds like there's kind of two scales that you look at mainly you've got the nano scale and you've got the robot scale so like starting with the nano one yeah. I find it hard to imagine how you can even design something that does what you want to do at that scale like what are the what are the parameters that you can adjust of something so small and so simple that can navigate it towards solving a task?
2: So with the with the robots, the bigger ones, the way you would do that is you would program them, mm-hmm. right? You would give them code that tells them what simple rules to follow based on their local environment. At the nanoscale, you can't program robots. They don't have a computer on board. And so what you're doing is designing their body in a smart way. So with particles, you can change their size. That changes their speed. You can change their charge. That changes how they stick to things. You can change their materials. Some of them you can activate using magnetic fields or using light. So you have a trigger that you can pull on these particles. You can decorate them with molecules that allow them to stick to other molecules, or other other particles, or other cells in the environment, and you can load them with something that you can release in a more or less controlled fashion. So, we have many knobs that we can turn on the design of these particles, and we're starting to understand how these designs change how the collective works once you inject them into the system. And actually, if you're a roboticist, you start realizing that as you turn these knobs, you change the ability of the particles to sense their environment, the ability of the particles to act on their environment by releasing something. That thing they release can be received by another particle, so now you have communication. And even though our particles can't go left or right, like my robots could if I commanded them to, they can speed up and slow down by self-assembly, for example. So a lot of the knobs that we have in swarm robotics are actually present at the nanoscale. They're much more hard to engineer. So then we need chemists who actually can design the right particle with these functionalities so that the collective does what we want. We kind of uh, have a new tool that can help us do that. Uh, so Anna uh, is working on a new system called the Dome, Dynamic Optical Microenvironment, Environment. Uh, and what it allows us to do is it allows us to project at tiny scales, so every pixel is like maybe 10 by 10 microns or so, um, images. And you can see what's happening to our little microagents. They could be bacteria or microparticles. And based on what's happening to them, we can change what we project. So what we're using this for is to do augmented reality. So we're pretending our particles can communicate by projecting little halos of light around them. And then these halos can communicate with other particles. It's a bit wacky. But that allows us to try with part reality, part virtual capabilities things at those tiny scales and seeing how that works then we could go to chemists to help us engineer the right particles I wondered if there are any side effects to having like trillions of these
1: nanoparticles inside the body if it were to treat cancer tumors or you know things
2: like that that's a great question it is important to understand where these particles go um The reason we like nanoparticles is that their size in certain types of tumors, uh, these particles leak out into the tumor tissue, so they tend to go preferentially to certain types of tumors rather than the rest of the body, so that makes them interesting vehicles to deliver drugs uh, or diagnostics to tumors. That being said, some particles are toxic, some particles don't go where you intended them to go. We are somewhat lucky in the biomedical field in that there is a clear pipeline to test drugs. Um, So in the US, it's FDA approval. And so that means that you know what to do to test uh, whether your system is safe or not. Um, And you know how to show that it is safe. And then you know how to basically push that to a level where it could be deployed as a treatment, which is not necessarily something we have in robotics, where we're still trying to figure out uh, how best to deploy these systems and within what framework. So so I think like any drug, uh, they need to be tested and made sure that they're safe. And that is something that the community does. Switching to
0: the kind of the other scale that you're interested in, which is the robot scale, what would make a swarm useful at that scale versus some other kind of system? Maybe just having like a single robot to do the problem, or something that's slightly more structured and control from a top-down perspective rather than bottom-up.
2: So there's a couple of features we like with swarms. One is because they're decentralized, so there's no leader telling uh, every robot what to do. They have the potential to scale to large numbers, Um, so if you have a large area you need to cover, for example you're doing environmental monitoring, the swarm approach would allow you to keep adding, theoretically, robots to the system and then it should be able to cover more ground. Uh, This decentralized nature also means that if you remove robots from your system, uh, it should continue to operate, so you should be robust to individual failure. Uh, and together, there's always this notion of more than the sum of the parts. They should be able to achieve seemingly complex tasks, uh, even though they're they're adopting these very simple rules. So it's, it's often these scenarios where you need more than one just because of the sheer scale uh, at which you're trying to do these behaviors. So whether it's the nanoscale, and you're trying to cover a, what seems like a massive tumor for a nanoparticle. Mm-hmm. Whether you're trying to do environmental monitoring or deploying a communication network, or even if you think of a warehouse, the number of tasks that need to be done, uh, it's not realistic for a single robot to be going in there doing those tasks. Um, Actually, we're finding we're getting a lot of interest from industry this year because... I think there's this notion that robots are ready individually. They can see how that would be useful within their industry, but they don't know how to make N robots uh, work together, which is actually what they would need uh, for these robotic solutions to be meaningful within their their application area. So we're getting a lot of interest from industry now. And I think there's something else that's interesting with Swarm's, and it's the adaptability. So if you think of uh, Amazon Warehouse, uh, where everything's very centralized... That requires dedicated infrastructure. Uh, They've built these warehouses with the idea that they're deploying these specific robots and everything has been formatted for that. But if you're trying to design a a multi-robot solution that has to be used uh, out of the box, maybe something that's more reactive uh, that doesn't require all this information but has the power of the numbers could allow you to be a bit more uh, adaptable out of the box without needing dedicated infrastructure. Uh, So those are all ideas. I think the We'll need, to, we'll need to demonstrate that that's true. Um, and I think we're still already the early stages in terms of mm-hmm. doing that. You've mentioned about drawing upon nature
1: in your research. I wondered if when you look ahead and you're thinking of new ideas, is that a practice that you like follow quite often to look at influences in nature and what you can model?
2: So, we have two approaches to engineer swarms. It's actually difficult to find these simple rules that give you the desired swarm behaviors you want. So, one is by inspiration, and I'll get back to that. And the other is machine learning. So, sometimes we have a group behavior that we're trying to design, and then we need to find the rules automatically. Or you could guess them, but that takes a lot of time. So, we use a lot of machine learning. And actually, now we can do that on board robots directly. So, in 15 minutes, you click start, and your swarm starts and it's a swarm in hardware, and in the hardware on the robots, they can learn how to swarm within 15 minutes. So you could go from not knowing how to swarm to swarm on the go. But besides the machine learning aspect, we also use a lot of bioinspiration. So there are sets of rules we already have from biologists. So that could be decision-making inspired from bees. It could be looking at flocking uh, inspired inspired from birds it could be trail formation similar to ants creating trails to your picnic table synchronization from fireflies those are all sources that we've actually implemented in some of our robot demonstrations uh the latest one is morphogenesis so that's with uh, james sharp over in barcelona and he studies embryogenesis so how we grow into fully functioning human shapes um and we inspired uh we we took inspiration from those rules and put it on a swarm of 350 of our coin-sized robots, and they grow shapes. Because it's bio-inspired, you can, the shapes are basically like limb structures, so you kind of get these protrusions that grow, and they you can chop them off and then regrow, and you can split the swarm in itself. So we get all these things that are inspired from nature uh, and that work because we have similar rule sets. Um, so, so definitely biology is a huge source of inspiration. We're currently doing a project with fish biologists studying how fish school and what sensors they use. So we've actually spent the last three years studying fish to figure out what sensors they use and in what circumstances. And we're trying to make a robot sensor so that we can have a minimal schooling robot uh, fish so those are, you know, nature does things really amazingly, and, and there's huge, huge levels of inspiration from that. If you look at the microscale bacteria and our ability to engineer them, too, using synthetic biology, uh, that's also giving us new building blocks that we can use to engineer our collective systems. Uh, so it's it's a big mix between, you know, the best of, of AI uh, and the best of nature. Given
0: that you might have some ideas about how to take inspiration from nature and you might have some intuitions about how to solve the problem, say if you've got a new kind of swarm task that you want to solve, what's the? how do you tend to start and is there a standard procedure that you go through for working out how to, how to get this swarm to do what you want to do or is there just a lot of trial and error in there?
2: Like many robot projects, it's first, is this a hardware or a software? kind of issue, is it that we already have the robots and we're trying to figure out the algorithms or is it that we have the algorithms? For example, we know how to do really good area coverage, uh, but we might be trying to do this over difficult terrain or we might be trying to do it in water and so we need a completely different type of, of swarm hardware uh, to be able to deploy that. So that's the first bit. And then if we don't know what algorithm to deploy, it could be part bio-inspiration. So for example, one of my students is thinking of, of robots that might jump uh, and so it's what jumps in nature, and why does it jump this high, and what's efficient. And so it's kind of just a fishing expedition to see what in nature has interesting solutions to the problems we're posing. Uh, but sometimes it's also just throwing machine learning at it um, and having a go in terms of seeing if anything interesting comes up. Uh, we, we've used machine learning in in different forms over the years. And when it's most interesting is when it comes up with solutions that are surprising, that aren't the ones that we would have programmed by sitting behind a computer guessing rule sets. And that does happen more often than you'd expect. Uh, So we we don't have all the answers. It is actually helpful to have tools to help us explore that space.
1: I was interested to um, know what your day-to-day work involves. Is it mainly like simulations, or do you actually deploy the patterns onto the robots themselves physically?
2: I don't get to do as much of the programming as I used to do. So it's mostly helping my my students improve. postdocs, build up, build up these really exciting projects. Uh, So we have quite a big team now. It's something like seven PhDs and four postdocs or so um, who, who are working with us. It's probably more, actually, if you kind of count the extended network, plus master's students. So my day-to-day is really loads of meetings with PhD students and postdocs, which I love, because that's where a lot of the ideas come from, and they have amazing... It's just really cool to see the results that they get. or Also, when there's no results, just to do the troubleshooting, it's kind of like debugging, but without actually having to do the hard work, which they do, of going into the code and solving the problems. Um, so my day-to-day is a lot of exciting discussions about really cool science and what I hope is, is the new frontier in swarm engineering. Um, a lot of teaching, well, not that much. Okay. I teach bio-inspired AI, which I said before was the, the class that got me into this field in the first place. Um, and I also have an almost two-year-old, so there's also the kind of my my day to day actually looks like baby, and then a bit of, of academia, and then baby for the rest of the afternoon and evening, and then academia again at night. So that's my day to day.
1: We've noticed you do a lot of outreach work, whether that be Robo Hub or several TED talks. Um, I'd love to hear more about Robo Hub and what the kind of the kind of work you do with that.
2: Sure. RoboHub is a nonprofit dedicated to connecting the robotics community to the public. Communicating uh, about robotics and AI is something I've cared about for a very long time. From when I was a, a PhD student, so we've been doing this for over over a decade now, and it really came from just a couple people in the lab, and also Dario, uh, the, the PI. Uh, Who was excited about just starting a podcast? And so we started this podcast and we started interviewing uh, researchers in robotics every two weeks. And after 50 episodes or so, there was this feeling that maybe we'd covered it all and then we should stop the podcast. <laughs> Uh, but we decided to keep it going. We kind of spinned it out of the lab and made it its own uh, nonprofit association. And so we're actually celebrating our 300th episode uh, in a week or so. so. It's been going on for a very long time now. And we never ran out of people to interview. So the field just keeps growing and growing and there's always new people to talk to. But we also realized that while we had this podcast, um, there were other researchers who had their own blogs. Uh, there was also a lot of hype, misinformation, and bad content about robotics and AI out there. And so, what we wanted to do is build a common portal where we could bring together anyone interested in talking about their field to a common place so that we could both help each other out in terms of communicating, uh, but also make our content more visible by having one place uh, where we would put the content so that everyone could see what was going on by going to this website. So that's the robohub.org website, which we've been building up over the time. Uh, so that's that's worked out quite well. It's really about, you know, helping roboticists communicate, giving them a platform to communicate, uh, and just trying to keep it going. So it's very volunteer-driven. It's just people who are passionate about uh, what we do in communicating robotics and AI. We're also just launching a new one called AIhub.org, uh, which has the support of a lot of the big organizations in artificial intelligence. And what we're discovering as well is that everyone cares about communicating better in robotics and AI right now. Um, So there's been a lot of great uh, efforts uh, across the world, really, in terms of improving comms. Uh, So the Royal Society has done great work uh, with their report on machine learning, but also they have a report called AI Narrative. So I've been involved in a number of efforts just to improve comms around robotics and AI. One thing I discovered as part of this work is that we also need to do way more listening. So up until now, it's always been about... We, the experts, need to tell the world what we're doing on and, you know, they're not hearing what we're saying and blah, blah, blah. But actually, we need to do much more listening. Um, As part of this Royal Society work, we did small group discussions because they did a study about the public perception uh, in machine learning. And we asked them, you know, what do you think of robots that take care of you as you grow older? What do you care of autonomous cars? You know, what do you think of of robots or, or AIs for diagnostics? And that's, I learned more in that weekend just listening to what people had to say than what I would at a conference mm-hmm. uh, in robotics and AI. Because we could hear their their real hopes, their real fears, and actually try to get a better understanding of what would work and what wouldn't work if we deploy these technologies uh, in a way that made sense. And that's part of why we did these studies in swarm robotics as well this summer. It's just this realization that we need to listen more. Um, So, yeah, that's what we do. We try to improve comms around robotics AI, but I think it needs to be more of a two-way process.
0: Yeah. So what kind of things are you starting to learn about the misconceptions or maybe the misconceptions you have in the other direction um, around this communication interface around AI and robotics?
2: The main take home is that we're having the conversations at the wrong level. People will say, what do you think of robots? What do you think of AI? And then it goes full sci-fi because (laughs) you're having these very high overarching discussions about about things that aren't real, Hmm. you know, that are so futuristic or that have no grounding in reality. And, and there's a good reason for that. Actually, in this, in this report from the Rose Society on Machine Learning, they discovered that 10% of the population didn't even know the term machine learning, but they knew of applications of it. So they knew of autonomous cars, they knew uh, that you could talk to your phone and it would answer back. So they knew about natural language processing. And they would learned about that mostly from mainstream media and from science fiction. So those are the main sources of, of information that people have. And if you have conversations at a very high level, those are the pitch lines, the simple sentences people just put out, like, robots are scary or bad, etc. But if you have them within the context of something that's very specific, that's close to what they care about, that puts it in the frame where you ask them, you know, where do you need help? Um, what type of technology do you want to see designed? Uh, what are you worried about? You don't talk about science fiction at all. You talk about their lives uh, and what they care about. And then you get answers and you get real meaningful discussions.
0: How do you see the current uh, state of play in robotics and and AI? Like, what are we doing well? What is missing technically, perhaps, about current approaches to um, artificial intelligence? Uh, what, What do you feel is missing? What still needs to be developed?
2: There's always more to be developed. So the reason I'm a researcher and not an industry is because there is always a new frontier to open up. Uh, so I th- I think everything is exciting and new, and there's always you know potential to push it in what seems like wacky directions, and then five years later, ten years later, this becomes a thing. I mean, when I started my PhD on drones, no one had drones, and I thought no one would hire me at the end of my PhD in industry because that just wasn't a thing. And then ten years down, it's one of the most sold robots uh, in the world are drones. Uh, so so I like the the wackiness, and there's always always new frontiers. I think what the robotics community needs more of is getting these robots into the real world. Uh, So there's the wacky frontier that I think we should all be pursuing because we need to make robots that are biodegradable. We need to figure out how to interact with swarms as humans and understand this whole new fields of human swarm interaction. We need to understand the merge between living in artificial systems. Like these are all the frontiers. But at the same time, we have a lot of the technology that could be solving these real challenges that people say they have. Um, by getting robots and AIs into the real world in these specific applications. Uh, I often do, do panel discussions where I ask the crowd, do you have a robot at home or at work? And, and most people say no. I very rarely have uh, you know more than maybe 10 people raise their hand, and that's usually because they have a vacuum cleaner. Uh, so I think that's that's the next wave of what we need to do, is get these real robots into their hands.
0: So most people don't really interact with robots in the day to day. Very few of them have them in their house. What is that something that you see changing in a big way in the future? Or how do you see our relationship with robots and, and AI systems in the future? Are they going to be domesticated or is it not going to pan out that way?
2: I think in the near term, we're going to see more and more robots that can help us do the single tasks well. Uh, so it took Dyson 12 years to actually develop their latest vacuum cleaner because it had a camera and it needed to make sense of complex environments which are our homes and every home is different. And so when they ended up testing it in Japan, people would put little cat ears on it, and that would, you know, that would mess with the camera, they would stop working, or they would put a dress on the robot and then it would stop working again because the camera couldn't see anything. So, you know, it took those 12 years to make that vacuum cleaner work well in our real world environments. But I think we're learning from those types of examples and we're gonna see more and more of the- those simple tasks whether it's cleaning your windows or picking up litter uh outside or you know anything where the task seems like it could be feasible by a robot if you put enough of research and development into it um i also think that there's a lot of of more futuristic, but not that futuristic applications that have the potential for real impact. So it could be, you know, how many hours do we spend in our cars? Um, So the whole area of autonomous driving. I think there's something like one in four people who are disabled by the time we hit retirement. So things like prosthetics and AIDS that just help us live a healthier life as we grow older. Uh, 10 billion people that we'll need to feed, so things like robots and agriculture. Uh, so I think there's just there's a whole realm of areas in which robots can have an impact if we find the right designs for them, given how challenging it is to make robots work well in the real world. And then there's things that we simply can't do without robots. Uh, so whether it's exploring space or the deep sea or you know trying to monitor very large parts of our environment, which are actually applications where I think swarms would be really helpful. Um, those are things we can't do without technology
0: Wonderful, okay, so thank you for this fantastic introduction to swarm robotics and the robotics field in general, I think it's been a really interesting discussion and yeah, thanks for spending time with us today.
2: Thanks so much If you enjoyed
0: this week's episode of Ingenious please subscribe and share the podcast with friends We'd also love to hear your feedback to get in touch or find out more about us and our guests head to ingeniouspod.org Music for our episodes is kindly provided by Yemzo Katana. Check him out on SoundCloud.